Hello, this is episode 292 of the Purple Psychology Podcast. I'm Nisha Rani. This episode is on the dangers of the individual focus. I've been looking for some quiet time to record this podcast. It's been a bit sort of doggy-tastic for the last few days. I don't know why. I think they just have a sixth sense. So I've been thinking a lot about this topic as well. I think it's been brewing in me for quite a few months now. I've been kind of collecting ideas and snippets of things that have been said to me along the way. One of my main tasks believe it or not, is that at the end of every teen session, well, regardless of age really, at the end of every session, what people say is, I feel seen. It's a very simple statement. But being seen, ironically, is what we need to feel that we can bring more and be the best of ourselves within any collective or community. And it's quite striking for me that most people travel through the world and they don't feel seen. We make a great deal of demands on teens to be part of a collective. It's been a focus in education increasingly for the last while, a big emphasis on group work and teamwork, and increasingly so people's university grades depend on the ability to be able to navigate this sort of monster. And I I recorded a podcast probably about two years ago now on the monster that is group work within third level education. And the irony for me in this is this is a phase of life that's incredibly individual. And I think it's quite important, maybe I should have said this in the introductory podcast, I don't really have a title for this this cohort of people that this podcast series is about. And I guess when I work with people, I form very different age ranges. And as well, when I had the school, I tended to not conform to mixing and matching people's ages in the way that we we would. When I was in school myself, in primary school, there were so few people in the school when I started. There was only 50 students in the whole school in the, the second primary school that I moved to, which was my best school experience. And so there was a mixture of ages within the class, and it was actually an incredibly positive thing especially for me at that time, because I could go ahead and be challenged in some ways in the things I was very good at, like maths, but I could also have the headspace to go back and spend more time on literacy that I was really struggling with. And so you can you can play a lot of appealing to people's strengths and weaknesses. We're a bit too confined in how we look at age. And when I think of teen, I actually think of right up to the age of 24. I don't feel the teen development ends at 18 or 21 even. There's a very important phase of your life, which Jung alludes to more than anybody, where you really need to go and improve yourself and achieve for yourself and go through creating milestones and almost trophies for yourself and to do that for yourself in order to gain confidence before you're really any use to anybody else, or you start to even think about anybody else, or you start to care beyond yourself. And then what happens around 24 is suddenly people start to step up and take care of the people closest to them, and then that starts to expand out. And this is one of the reasons why every community needs elders. They need that wisdom and that input from an age beyond them who have gone through those phases already and have more to contribute to the collective. So I'm starting to see a lot of hints in social media and and this has been brewing for a while. I think it's been brewing around some of the people who 
have gained a lot of popularity in social media and other platforms, particularly around environmental issues. And there's a big hint about this generation being precious. And the irony for me in this is that many of the people posting around this are actually the ones responsible for this generation's choices, not the generation themselves. They didn't decide to not walk to school or not take the bus or have a million after-school activities that they had to somehow squash into their day and be good at everything. They didn't decide to have an overall fashion-conscious existence from being a young child. They didn't move away from the idea of just dressing as children need to dress, to play and to be outside and to, to do what children do. There wasn't the sort of pressures there. They don't choose what goes in their lunchbox. They don't choose how many packets are in it. They don't choose how much time everything takes. So there's a series of patterns that this generation have had superimposed on them and are now being blamed for. And increasingly, parents have used different forms of technology as babysitters, starting with the TV and moving on from that. Increasingly, parents themselves are very absorbed by box sets and Netflix series and have a great attachment to their phone. And you will go out into public locations and you will see people with far more time spent on their phone than actually engaging with their children. And then suddenly when they get to the teenage years and they mimic this, they, they, they kind of have a double standard and feel that this generation is disengaged and has a huge need of technology. So it's, this is really what this series of podcasts is about. It's about showing how we've actually superimposed a lot of patterns on a generation that we now want them to be responsible for, but they were never their choices. And around that, we're now having a huge conversation on the idea of the selfishness of the individual. And again, this is one of the aspects of why I use personality in sessions. Because it focuses on the difference in personality, but I also focus a lot on the differences in communication style. And it's one of the reasons why I love the founding ideas of Myers-Briggs, because they wanted there to be a better world, because there was better understanding between people, and there was a better understanding that people needed to communicate differently. And again, this comes back to feeling seen, feeling heard, feeling like the other members of your household can understand how you hear a conversation, how that sounds in your head, what opinions you form for it, what expectations you form from what people are saying to you, how much pressure you put yourself under to be good enough, what messages you really hear. But there is a theme that I will admit, there is a focus in society at the moment that rewarding individuality and rewarding the people who can successfully navigate this on the internet in particular and particularly in social media platforms and I'll probably shelve that and actually do a special episode on the pressures I'm starting to see with TikTok and other things but yet again I'm seeing you know it being a good thing that someone is worth two million dollars who was unemployed who theoretically hasn't said a word on the internet. And in one sense, yes, I'm glad that person's carved out 
a lifestyle for them. But on the other hand, I have to question a society when we reward that. And a lot of the people that I'm working with who have great talents and great attributes and great skills don't feel that they have a place in the world. And so they're judging their place in the world and their abilities based on how much traction they get on social media or how much reward they get from people. It's a very skewed place to exist. And so we have a generation of people now who feel that they have to be individualistic in order to achieve and to succeed. There's a great deal of pressures, but similarly, they're hugely criticized for size to carve out roles in society and employment opportunities and ways to exist in the world that are a bit different to what we would have ticked as a job box or a job idea, you know, a decade ago even. Like, it's, it's not unusual for someone to tell me that they want to be a YouTuber or a gamer and that they wish to create their lifestyle and their revenue prospects around that in the future. And yet I have a lot of challenges with that, that, that that's what society rewards and that that's actually a viable career. And that it's not just a viable career, it's a viable way to actually exist as our society right now. One of the other conversations that's stuck in my head around this, and I've had it from a number of different people from, from maybe the same generation, and then I heard it again in Cecily Tyson's biography, as I am. And this was the idea that there was a generation who fought for so much and fought for the dignity of others and didn't want people to go through what they went through, which is incredibly admirable and the world has changed dramatically as a result of their actions. And in, and, and in a way, I went to look at John Lewis to see, you know, if I could find quotes that he had said around youth. And what I actually found was articles talking about him meeting people in schools at the same age he was when he achieved so much and put himself in such difficult situations to create lasting change, particularly in the sit-ins, both in terms of the buses, but also the sit-ins in terms of restaurants and people being served at the counter and being allowed to eat in the same locations. like. There has there's been seismic shifts because of that generation and because of those people. But in a way, as I start to think about it, like how do you compare yourself now at 16 or 17 to what those people have done? How do you begin to feel like you're doing enough? Are there people who are willing to send you a bus ticket because you can't afford it, as Martin Luther King did for John Lewis? It's very hard to ask of this generation to be enough almost in what they're being compared to what is being done. But also I was left with, with the question that, that Cecily Tyson raised, which was almost that we've done too much for people. And it's not that I feel that we've done too much for people, but I do question whether you can really fight for the dignity of others or whether they have to fight for that themselves. And that doesn't mean that you want society to continue to be a non-level playing field and a racist place and a discriminatory one and positively toxic. That's not what I'm saying. But there are all sorts of ways 
that we rise up to our own self-worth. And there is an aspect that you can't have someone completely do that for you. And if I broaden that out to what I see for this generation of people, they've grown up with parents who want to make their lives easier, who want to do everything for them, who want everything to happen, who want them to be better than them. And that's a, a, a tall ask. They want them to achieve all that they've achieved and to achieve more. But at the same time, they don't exactly have a place to achieve it or in independence or the opportunities that others had to prove themselves or they don't feel they do. It's a very small percentage of people that you read in articles who really look for those aspects to fight and to create. And again, we're asking them at a very young age to do it for beyond themselves, but we want to judge them on their popularity while they do it. So I'm not surprised that I find all these talented, gifted people with dreams and ambitions and ideals and values and so much that another generation had. And I find them all sitting in their bedrooms, unable to feel like they belong or that they feel seen or even knowing where to begin to take their messages. But it really is as simple as them feeling seen and someone taking the time to do that and taking the time to make them feel like their ideas have a voice and have a value just because they're not some extrovert person who's really savvy at gaining traction on the internet. But I do feel an insane chaos for these people's lives and I feel the messages that they're being told and I'm watching the, the dysfunction and the challenges and the conversations that they're having in their own head starting to happen younger and younger and the disconnect. Like, this wouldn't have often cropped up until people were 15 or maybe 17, but now I'm seeing it as young as 12. And it's complete turmoil. I haven't really heard anyone ask this generation what they actually want. I haven't heard anyone ask them how to make changes in the system before they've already gone through it and before it, it feels obsolete and it feels like they don't have the skills that they need to navigate the world. We have a sense of watering down the curriculum, but they haven't asked us to do that. And we haven't asked the people who enjoy learning details how they feel about that. And we haven't asked them about the pressures or the lack of hope that they feel or the challenges they have to fit in but still be unique and individualistic. We haven't asked them how they feel about all the boxes and titles and labels that they have to pick. We haven't asked people how they feel about their lives feeling as if they're on hold and as if they have to go through a process of completing certain cycles, certain systems, getting certain grades before their lives can even begin. We haven't asked them about how there doesn't feel like there's a place to work your way up. When I listen to the lives of people of the generation, 
of Cecily Tyson and John Lewis and people like that. There was so much opportunity that they felt, even within the complete constraints of what they grew up in. And this is the irony for me. The world has changed dramatically because of those generations of people. And there aren't the sort of constraints because they put themselves in such danger to change them. And yet we have a generation of people who feel far more constrained than they ever did.